As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal and the Bloomberg Business App. Joining us now, we're thrilled to have her, usually for big events. Well, today's a big event. It's always a big event. When Ellen Zentner joins us, Chief U.S. Economist at Morgan Stanley. Ellen, on claims, I go to the four-week moving average. How do you interpret claims with this 231,000 statistic? And can you say there's finally a vector in place of higher claims, more pain? So I hope that there's a higher vector in place. I disagree that higher claims would mean more pain. Um, we're coming off of extraordinarily low levels. Um, as you said, we look at the four-week moving average to smooth through volatility, and it has been lifting. But it is still very low. And so what does that tell me? Something that Mike and Lisa alluded to as well, normalization, slowing and normalization. Good God, man, that's what we've been needing. And I don't see this accelerating at an extreme pace. I've been on the road the last few days in several states meeting with corporate clients. They are they are finally seeing some relief in terms of how tight the labor market has been in terms of the availability of the kinds of employees that they need. We're seeing not just claims rising a bit here, but I focus on continuing claims. People that have been losing their jobs are staying unemployed for a bit longer, and that's been rising since October. So it's getting more difficult to just get reemployed right away. This is the kind of softness in the labor market that we have needed. And of course, it takes pressure off the Fed to raise rates uh, again, right, going on extended hold. What is the distance between normalization and an outright downturn? <clears throat> So well, the difference is jobs stay positive. So normalization is you've got more supply coming back into the labor market. So you see participation rates rising, which we have. That is what puts upward pressure on the unemployment rate. And we've been seeing that. And if people are having taking longer to be able to get reemployed, then that should produce further upward pressure on the unemployment rate. But that just takes pressure off the labor market, pressure off of businesses, off of margins. You see wages grow, uh, grow more slowly, and you'll see confidence build among Fed policymakers that they have done enough here. Um, I don't think we're anywhere near getting to negative job gains. I think negative jobs would mean uh, that, that companies have stopped hiring. What I hear is that they're doing selective hiring, that they stop hiring and that they start firing. And I mean firing uh, broadly, and that's just not what we're seeing. But I, I'm ever watchful 
especially reading earnings transcripts to see if that's something that's around the around the corner. I'm glad you mentioned earnings because we were talking about Walmart and I understand there are idiosyncrasies here, but they talked about potentially seeing outright deflation uh, over the next year with consumers clearly pushing back. You do see margin pressure. You do see a marked deterioration in consumer appetite over the past 90 days. How concerning is that to you about the nonlinearity of where things could be? So, Lisa, we, we put out a consumer survey that goes out into the field every two weeks. And one of the biggest areas of trade down that households have been doing is within stores themselves, say, going from a high price branded good to the generic good within the store. And that means that those retailers are going to see some deflation. And we've been hearing from businesses that input costs are falling, but prices that they're charging are falling faster. And that's important because we all started to think, we, the economics community at large, not myself, though, an exception, started to think that households just have unlimited price tolerance. And that is not the case. Finances start to slow. We run through that excess savings and you will start to trade down. The lower income groups that Walmart serves are the groups that have been standing the greatest pressure. Look at delinquency rates for the lowest income groups mm-hmm. on credit cards, on auto loans. That points to stress. Ellen, Molly Smith and Alice Atkins for Bloomberg made a big splash the other day using your research, the Morgan Stanley View. And the key distinction is a 4.3% unemployment rate. I hereby dub it the Zentner 4.3% statistic. How do we get to a 4.3% unemployment rate that radically shifts Fed policy? I'm not expecting radicalism from the the Fed. Uh, The unemployment rate at 4.3%, we think, is a soft landing unemployment rate in that it is driven by slower job gains and higher labor force participation. Now, I understand that is a beautiful scenario for the Fed, and we have them cutting next year by 100 basis points because of normalization. That's very different than cutting because the Fed thinks there's recession. If the Fed thinks that there's recession, they're starting big and they're doing a lot. That's very different than the normalization scenario. And then overlay with that what we're hearing, Julia Coronado leading the way on this. Dr. Coronado suggesting productivity is underestimated. Do you believe that we have an underestimation of the efficiency of the American economy and that gets you to a benevolent 4.3% unemployment rate? Yeah, so so I do think that productivity is being underestimated. I would add, though, that productivity has not been well estimated ever and so you'd have to say, well, it's it's being estimated, um, you know, worse than before. And I'm not sure we can say that. But I think there are a lot of new ways that productivity uh, exhibits itself in the economy that we're just not able to capture. Government data is not able to capture. Um, but absolutely, if productivity is higher, then you can withstand um, higher wage growth without it being uh, inflationary. It gives the Fed more runway because it keeps a lid on inflation. And so it's, it's really, it lifts all boats. It's, it's productivity and infrastructure, what economists go to sleep at night dreaming about, Tom. Which is the reason why I, I think people are sort of hopeful that we're going to get that and we're going to create this soft landing and avoid something more challenging. I guess to wrap it all up, we've been talking all morning about the potential for deflation. Tom was talking about how difficult that is for any economy to handle. This is the word that Walmart used. But you're talking about normalization. 
how concerned would you be to see some sort of material deflation, not disinflation, deflation in certain good sectors that we have been seeing on the margins over the past couple of months? Yeah, so Lisa, good sectors, I'm not worried about at all. We Goods prices in the U.S. have been in deflation for a decade leading up to COVID. That's normal, right? We were importing a lot of deflation, but that's externally determined. You know, I would be very, very concerned about a deflation scenario in the U.S. for services, for domestically determined prices. For us to get to that broadly, you're talking about an extraordinary downturn on the yeah. magnitude of the financial crisis in 2008 that would get that kind of price declines, declines in the level of prices. Instead, I I think deceleration is in train. I think it's going to be faster than the Fed is expecting. And I think I've, I've been really pleased. And I think they should be pleased, too, with the progress that we've seen. The Newtonian mechanics of Ellen Zentner of Morgan Stanley there and the dynamics of price change. Uh, Ellen, thank you so much for the brief. William Dudley joins us now, former New York Fed president, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Bill, you and I'm going to suggest uh, Professor Williams, now holding court in the former Dudley chair, have a unique perspective on our flows, our liquidity, our trust. Sitting at the New York Fed, what is the confidence or trust deterioration you've observed? Uh, I think there is complete trust uh, in the New York Fed uh, because that the Fed basically understands the plumbing of the financial system and understands what needs to be done to make sure that plumbing works uh, all, always, even under times of stress. One area of vulnerability where the Fed and the Treasury are looking at right now is the Treasury market itself because the volume of Treasury borrowing has gone up dramatically and the capacity of the primary dealers to take on that uh, that burden uh, has diminished because of all the regulation on capital and you know leverage. So there are, there do there do need to be some significant changes I think to the treasury market to make it more uh, strong and resilient. And what I propose is a couple of things: one, central clearing of treasuries, so they all go through a central counterparty. So your risk is just to the central counterparty, allows you to net down a lot of bilateral risk to a single risk to one. Uh, in person. Second, uh, uh, increase the, the leverage, uh, the haircuts uh, a bit so, they, so that they don't need to be increased during times of stress. Right now you have low haircuts and then there's, a, there's stress and the haircuts go up, which force people to sell. And the last thing, uh, which Mike, Mike was talking about, is uh, opening up the Fed's uh, repo facility more broadly, uh, making it so that people can take treasuries and turn them into cash at any time. And if they know that, then they don't actually have to sell the treasuries you know, in anticipation of a problem, uh, they can wait to see if they actually need the cash. Bill, if none of, that, none of that gets done, do you think the action we've seen and what you expect compromises the QT program coming out of the Fed? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think the QT program basically is on autopilot as long as there isn't a lot of market disruption. So if the market performs reasonably well, then QT keeps going. Only if we have the kind of events like we had in September 2019 or March 2020, we you see QT suspended. Because if the market isn't working right, the last thing the Fed wants to do is dump more securities into the marketplace. What's at stake here, uh, Bill? If there isn't this sort of fix that you propose or this three-pronged uh, proposal, how much are we seeing what sort of the new normal looks like with bouncing around 20 basis points on a 10-year yield from day to day? versus something more significant that creates a real crisis in the world's deepest and most liquid market? 
Yeah, I think the volatility we've seen this year is not a, a treasury market function problem. I think the volatility we've seen this year is people trying to figure out what's, what's the trajectory of short-term rates uh, over the next uh, six to 12 months. And there's been lots of changes in view as, as the economic data has come out. Uh, I think the problem is more when all of a sudden people want to dump treasuries and there's not enough capacity on the other side to absorb that. Uh, that ha- has happened a few times. Uh, and it, obviously it needs, you know, it needs a catalyst. And it's hard to predict what that catalyst could be. But what I want is a treasury market that can handle those kind of shocks if and when they occur. Are you saying that right now there is an inability? What do you expect will happen if there is some sort of catalyst? Well, if there is some sort of catalyst, one of the problems, we, a lot of the treasury trading is handled by uh, algorithmic traders who basically pro- don't really provide long-term <clears throat> liquidity to the market. They just provide liquidity for a microsecond, and then the, 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 they, 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 they move that security off to someone, someone else. And when things get uh, scary... Uh, they completely withdraw from the market. And then the market is really now then has to go to the primary dealer community. But the primary dealer community hasn't allocated capital to this business because most of the time they're actually not doing it. So there's no one there at sort of at the, at, 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 in, in extremis provide balance sheet capacity to sort of calm the market. And that's one reason why you'd like to have the ability to take your treasury securities to the Fed and turn them into cash without having, actually having to sell them. Uh, so the Treasury is the only one, uh, the Fed is the only one who has a balance sheet that is actually elastic. So why not make it clear that that ba- elastic right. balance sheet is available on an ex-ante basis, as opposed to only ex-post after Levi actually had the problem? Bill, how does our data dependency look next year? I think we've had a celebration of disinflation in place. Is the nature or character of the Fed's data dependency different now and forward? Well, I think they're more confident that they've, uh, you know, moved monetary policy to a restrictive level, and it's actually working to bring down inflation. Uh, but we still don't know a lot of things. We don't really know if uh, how tight monetary policy is. We don't know how long it's going to take to get inflation down to two percent. So I think the degree of uncertainty and risk is a lot less less today than it was, say, eighteen months ago uh, when the Fed started the tightening process. But there's still a lot of uncertainty about how strong the economy can be and whether the Fed is done. What a roller coaster ride this bond market's been on over the last few months. Bill, wonderful to catch up with you, sir. Always is. Former New York Fed president, Bill Dudley there. An interesting, thought-provoking piece from Bill on the future of this Treasury market. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. We talked to a lot of experts on this, and this is what you get if you get a double degree at the acclaimed Holy Cross, the College of the Holy Cross in economics and accounting, the hyper-detail mathematics ratios, the financial analysis of retail that Chuck Graham has acclaimed for. He's a Gordon Haskett. I'm not going to mince words. We protect the copyright of all of our guests. Get his brilliance from Gordon Haskett. How do you go and outperform on Walmart with a 30 PE? Explain why Walmart has a PE like a luxury goods pervader. And Walmart's been executing flawlessly for for several quarters, and even maybe the past couple of years. Um, And the business mix shift and the gross margin visibility. I mean, there's never been a time in the 20 years I've covered Walmart where I've been this bullish on on the long-term outlook. Clearly today, it's an, it's interesting. It's it's a little bit about positioning. You guys talked in your your remarks about valuation. That's a factor. Um, if you really dig underneath the covers here, it's really less about the top line, and I think less about the the back half of October commentary that the CFO recently made. I think it's more about the margin flow through. That was disappointing. The U.S. margins were disappointing. So when you have a stock at at an all time high at very rich valuations, and you get a little bit of a disconnect, you get this right. negative reaction. I think the stock will come back throughout the day and over the next couple of weeks but today could be could be could be difficult for the stock can they compete with amazon or dare i never said this before chuck grom but can they beat amazon i don't know if they can beat amazon but they can definitely compete and i I think the physical assets of their four thousand plus stores in the country really provide them with being really close to, and being able to connect with their customers so walmart plus we, there's a lot of opportunity there so can they beat Probably not, but can they compete 100%? Chuck, you said that margins disappointed, and that's really yeah. interesting at a time where people are wondering when are consumers going to start pushing back on price increases. Is this an indication that Walmart is seeing that that time is now, and that in order for them to compete, they've got to take a hit on the margins? Well, I think almost uniformly, you know, consumers are pushing back on price, and that's why prices are coming down almost across the board. And we we cover. Home Depot, we cover TJ, we cover, um, you know, Target, you know, Macy's, Walmart. They're all talking about, you know, prices starting to flatten out and retreat. I think the U.S. margins were softer because of the GLP uh, influence on, on the on the on the margins because of the drug. It's a lower margin product. It was a was a higher sales in the here in the quarter. And when you have discretionary sales be softer, those are higher margin categories for Walmart. So it's really a mixed factor. It, it looks like obviously the calls at eight o'clock and the callbacks are later in the day. So we'll get more clarity later in the day. But but looking at what it looks like now, I think it's more of a mixed factor. You know, we were talking earlier about what's good news or bad news for the broader economy when Walmart does badly or well in terms of which consumers are shopping there. Is there any read through based on the earnings that we've gotten from retailers about whether we're seeing a division between haves and have nots about whether we are seeing any broader trends in terms of how the consumer is evolving, which areas are going to be bright spots and which won't? That's a great question. I think it's really too early to tell. I mean, you look at Walmart's numbers, they're up, you know, comp up five, Target yesterday down five you know um, you look at macy's down down six or seven here um it, it looks pretty uniform i think there's pressures across the board it's not really like the high end doing well you guys talked about burberry earlier we'll get more color from 
from Nordstrom next week. Uh, I, I think it's pretty uniform across the board. And you know, we've been talking about our consumer surveys being weak, traffic being weak. The, today's numbers and the reactions here over the past 48 hours have really nothing to do with the top line. The top line and the sales are pretty much in line with where people thought. It's A, right. positioning, and it's the margin flow throughs for certain companies. What's the future of Nordstrom's? The family dynamic and also the attempt to be luxury I guess what I, as an amateur I'd say is accessible luxury. Is Nordstrom a sleeper for five years out? I think if I think it's a great concept. Um, I think the the rack has really been their Achilles heel over the past several years. So if they could get the rack fixed, I, I think the fact that they they don't have a huge presence of full line stores across the country is actually a, a tremendous asset vis-a-vis Kohl's or Macy's, which have got hundreds of stores. So I think it's a, I think it's a viable concept. They, they need to get the rack fixed. And that's what people and investors have been waiting for. Chuck, what's the rack? Uh, it's their off price division. And what do you mean by fixed? What's wrong with it? Uh, well, when you look at, you know, look at TJ and Ross comping up, you know, low to mid single digits, and, and you see the rack comping down, it's just it's been broken. I mean, just their business hasn't been good. It seems like there's been some cannibalization across the store base. We're not exactly sure. Um, there's been some merchandise issues. They've tried to price up when when the consumer wanted to be priced down. Um, but yeah, the, the, the Nordstrom's viable for sure. Um, but the rack division, their off-price division, I'm sorry for not clarifying earlier, is really the- No, it's okay. Now I know, I'm just, just for people who are trying to follow. Have you noticed, yeah. Chuck, that the off-rack, the rack, is actually close to the Nordstrom stores? Have you noticed yeah. that? Which is kind yeah. of odd. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you, my wife will, will, will tend to go to the rack now a lot more than the full line. So yeah. that's what I'm talking about. The cannibalization factor um, of that is, is probably maybe the, the issue here. And maybe they need to close more rack stores. But, you know, ironically, they're trying to grow more right now. So we're hold rated. <laughs> we're kind of we're, we're perplexed on some of the strategies there for the time being. It's trying to be TJX and Nordstrom at the same time. Which yeah. Are, with yeah, the same brand is it's hard to do. Yeah. Chuck, thank you. Chuck Grom of Gordon Haskett. Thank you, mate. Right now, on these important meetings, we're making jokes about it. Come on, this is important. Michael Hurston joins on head of China Research at 22V at Research. Michael, thank you so much for briefing us this morning. What did you, what was the unexpected that you saw last night besides a dictator faux pas by the president late? What was the unexpected of the meeting? Nothing too unexpected, frankly, which I think is good. Um, Maybe the Chinese readout perhaps was a bit more positive than I was expecting. And that really reflects what has been a bit of a, excuse me, a recalibration in China's official tone towards the U.S. over the last few weeks. But other than that, I would say no big surprises. Okay, no big surprises. Great. What's next? When's the next meeting? Does the president uh, travel to China to uh, uh, make it to? Well, I think that's actually a really important point, Tom, because this is basically the last high-profile meeting that the two leaders are going to have before the next U.S. presidential election. So this kind of sets the parameters for the next year. And those parameters really are trying to find stability, not allowing a crisis to take place over something like Taiwan, and then just making incremental progress on some of the key issues in the relationship. But if you think about it, the closer we get to the U.S. presidential election, the harder it will be for Biden to do anything that's seen as being soft on China. And of course, 
why would Xi Jinping make concessions to the U.S. when he doesn't know who the next president will be? So I think that's where we are. That's why this was kind of an important window for the two leaders to meet. Did the dictator comment mean anything to you? Not really. I don't want to dismiss it entirely. I think it probably was perhaps uh, not the positive tone to go out on. But I think in the grand scheme, given how much work both sides did to try to make this meeting happen, I don't think it's going to color too much on the Chinese side. What did you make of the meetings uh, that Xi Jinping had with U.S. executives, Apple's Tim Cook, for example, a whole host of others, and then a private meeting with Elon Musk? What's your takeaway of how different the business view on China is from the U.S. government's view on that country? I think there are a few very prominent U.S. firms that have this special position in China where, and that would put Apple and Tesla very much as the two bellwethers in that category. They have managed this straddle between the U.S. and China. It's not an easy straddle on either side, but they're in kind of a special category. If you look at the you know broader set of U.S. firms in China, it's really a mix between those who feel like they have a decent market in China and those who are really um, upset about China's policies. Um, and so I, I would put Tesla and Apple in this kind of special category. And so it's no surprise that they got some special attention from Xi Jinping. Do you have a sense of who needs who more, of whether Tesla and Apple need China more than China needs them and the jobs that they provide? It's, a, it's an interesting question. I would say for the companies, they need out, they need China more. But if we're talking about Apple and Tesla, they are very important bellwethers for how the business community looks at the playing field in China and not just the U.S. business community. That's Europeans, uh, Japanese, you know, uh, global companies in China, which is why I think Beijing actually has to tread very carefully with things like, for example, potential reta- retaliation against Apple. So, yeah, the companies need China more. But these are quite important as Xi Jinping looks to try to revive confidence in China's economy and China's investment environment. Michael, a question we haven't brought up yet. I've been remiss on this. Is Hong Kong Kong going to evolve into something that we don't see right now? Is Is there a Herson Hong Kong out there that's going to be different? I think Hong Kong really, and I, w- I was just there last week, is in this somewhat gradual transition from a global hub to really more of a pure capital gateway to China and is increasingly becoming more of a Chinese city. That is still an interesting position for it to play. And a number of China watchers that I've had discussions with recently have made the point that they think Hong Kong is going to remain an interesting city as the political environment in China stays very tight and in some cases even tightens further. So Hong Kong losing its status as a global financial center, but still quite an important um, city in the context of, uh, in in particular, context of China. So what's the alternative for those people whining and dining with uh, Mr. Xi last night? What city do they go to? Well, I think if we're talking about the financial sector, you know, it's a number of places. Singapore obviously has, has gained a step even Tokyo has become more important as a regional financial center. If we're talking about the multinationals, there, you know, it's wherever they can get capacity and wherever they can get the logistics right. So in many cases, as you, you know, uh, you mentioned Vietnam earlier, Vietnam is yes, a beneficiary, but it's also Mexico. It's a lot of countries. 
Michael, we've got to leave it there. Thanks for being with us. Michael Hurston there of 22V Research. Thank you very much. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.